This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Hi folks, this is Mark Bashore, executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com. Our edition of Side Alpha Podcast today will be a little different, uh, not a solo one, so it's not just you and I. But I am going to be joined by uh, Chris uh, Sabalero, who is uh, EMS One Advisory Board Member and the host of Inside EMS Podcast, our sister podcast within the Lexapol Network. Chris, thanks for joining us. Chief, I got to tell you, I'm excited to be here. I am a longtime listener, first time caller. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And uh, we're going to get right into the year end wrap up. You know, so Chief, let me ask you a question as the host of Fire Rescue uh, fire rescue one show side alpha podcast. And we had you on inside EMS to kind of talk about the show. And as I mentioned in the opening, I listened to every episode and I think you have a great feel for what's going on in the fire service. And if I ask you, you know, kind of the biggest trends or the biggest stories, you concentrated a lot on safety this year. Mm-hmm. And I got to think that safety has got to be one of these big stories that are happening both from an EMS side as well as a fire side. Yes, safety, obviously, uh, on so many fronts. And the one that this year uh, has meant a lot to me, and um, I did, I've joined the Fire Chiefs Advisory Board for uh, HOSS uh, Alerts System. Uh, that um, and, and the whole alert system to alert drivers that there are fire trucks or ambulances or police cars or work zones ahead uh, to at least give them an alert is something that I'm very passionate about because, you know, we've lost a lot of fire EMS police and um, you know, road workers to secondary incidents or primary incidents for that matter on a roadway. So anything we can do to increase the safety and that HOSS system is, uh, is certainly one way to, to do that. We just need to try to find a way to work that into more of our departments and you know, make, raise awareness of what it's really about. You know, and I, and I have to agree with that, but I think that one of the things that, you know, from an EMS side that we've seen when it comes to safety has really been around this, this COVID thing as well. I mean, we're still seeing uh, vehicle damages with ambulances. You know, recently this year, we had uh, a paramedic EMT who was uh, driving and uh, had a fatality in the ambulance as it flipped over. And, and we're still trying to see this, you know, how do we keep our employees as safe as we can? And, you know, we, we talk about lights and sirens and is it really needed? And I think that all these things are going into this process, Chief, of uh, trying to keep our workforce safe with stress and mental wellness and COVID and, you know, uh, civil unrest that is going on all over and, you know, even vehicle operations. And, uh, you know, maybe is even discussion, do we need to get to the point of saying, and I'm just going to say this because it's a big issue in EMS, lights and sirens. Is it something that is truly important from an EMS side? Of course, as a first responder uh, from the fire side, you've got to be able to get to that structure as quickly as possible. And I think the average of uh, fire apparatus getting on scene is less than four minutes around that time frame. But from an EMS standpoint, are lights and sirens as important? Well, yeah, you know, it's a great point. And frankly, um, not to uh, belittle the fire side at all on this, but I don't necessarily agree that everything we do on the fire side has to be a hot response, if you will, uh, or a priority response. I think that we collectively as uh, organizations 
probably 10, 15 years ago, we began this discussion of hot, warm and cold response and um, it kind of went away. You know, the purists in a lot of our departments um, took the stance that, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to recruit anybody on the volunteer side or uh, if Grandma Jones calls, I got to get there, I got to get there, I got to get there. And well, yeah, we got to get there. At some point, we have got to have that serious discussion about whether every call we go to uh, or most of the calls we go to truly deserve a priority response. And I would just about bet you, you know, and I tell people when I talk about leadership and we teach leadership, but I talk about looking at your wall judge, uh, you know, use your wall judge, which is a sixth sense kind of thing. But look at the wall judge and ask them whether uh, that person who is experiencing um, I don't know, let's just say uh, leg pain. That person that's experiencing leg pain has to have a priority response to the hospital. Some would say, do they even need to be in an ambulance? But I'm, you know, that's not in this discussion right now. Uh, certainly as an industry, we are uh, doing a lot of taking, you know, you call, we haul um, as, as a uh, way of doing business. But I think it goes beyond that discussion of hot, warm, cold response, but we, we've got to find a way to re-energize that because I can point to a dozen or more incidents this year where ambulances and fire trucks have been struck, especially at intersections, responding hot or responding lights and siren through a red light uh, where the operator of our equipment, uh, recently just one in Florida, where the operator of a ladder truck was uh, uh, at fault for going through a red light without securing the intersection, uh, you know, and in that particular case, it was not a working fire or a priority incident. So yeah, no, great, uh, great discussion. And I think as we, as we think about ways we can improve safety, having or re-energizing that discussion of hot, warm and cold responses is, uh, is something we should do. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think it kind of goes to our second big story, Chief, that we kind of talked about from an EMS side. I'd love to get your impression about it as well, is now in this mode of ET3, where we are talking about, you know, because you mentioned it, do they really need to go to the hospital? I got to tell you, in my 30 some years of being in the EMS business, uh, this is the environment we created. We wanted everybody to go well, to the we hospital. We accepted every bit of it. Yep. You know, yep. that's how we got paid. We are incentivized to take people to the hospital. But now in the days of ET3, where we're treating and releasing on scene, or we're transporting to alternative destination, you know, one of the things that I, I want to ask you from the fire side is, is this whole transition to, um, you know, telehealth and community paramedicine, right? Because we're seeing more, I mean, the, if the, anything good comes out of the pandemic, Chief, it's the fact that we learned that we can do mobile integrated healthcare via telehealth, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we're helping facilitate telehealth with ET3. Uh, we're, 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 you know, from a community paramedicine side, how has the fire service really kind of accepted that telehealth uh, component? Because in EMS, we're really starting to make the shift and try to figure out, as you mentioned, do I have to send an ambulance to the leg pain yeah. or can I get them on a telehealth visit with yeah. a community paramedic or a nurse? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, successful programs around the country, some that are still evolving. And I think that's one of the big things we're going to see in the coming year is a continued evolution of programs. Um, I am a big proponent of fire-based EMS or call it what you want to call it, EMS-based fire. However, 
you call it, I'm a big proponent of us as public safety officials uh, being in one organization and responding to those 911 calls together or um, as one unit. Um, that said, I also believe that the mobile integrated health community paramedicine programs are all part of a community risk reduction program. There are a couple fire departments across the nation that have embraced uh, community risk reduction and mobile integrated health as one unit. Um, we, we brought that up in, um, in Highlands County before I retired from there and uh, had the discussion, a lot of good discussion with the hospitals and with the fire departments about it. And we just didn't quite get there. Um, but I think you're going to see a lot more of that discussion. And it's, it's about twofold. One, it's maximizing resources, which, you know, management, we have a responsibility to do that. Um, but it's also reducing that stress on our employees, uh, reducing the amount of uh, times that they have to uh, worry about transporting that non-essential patient to the hospital at two o'clock in the morning uh, because they have uh, a hangnail. You know, those, those things are things that, you, like you said, Chris, we accepted it. We built it. We, you know, it's, it's nobody's fault per se, but we built it and we accepted it. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I'm a big advocate of the two um, entities, fire and EMS, working together. This not being third-party service or whatever. I'm not, not taking any shots at anybody, but it's just who I am and what I'm about. And I think thinking of it in community risk reduction as a whole, because that's really what it is, uh, is a great way to get the message across to everybody that, you know what, we're going to reduce a little bit of the call volume, the non-essential call volume, but we're also going to get out into our communities and be more part of that social fabric. You know, Chief, one of the things that when we talked about this from a telehealth community paramedicine, mm -hmm. you know, I've been, I do a lot of work uh, in my business of uh, trying to get, I'm working with a big commercial payer of uh, trying to get them to pay for community paramedicine home visits. Mm. And one of the things that I think is really important, we're starting to see more and more, but I don't think enough fire services getting into the MIH community paramedicine business. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the trends that we're starting to see is we're, you know, again, a good thing that comes out of this pandemic is the fact of community paramedicine has really taken a stronghold that we can do a lot of things and we're not, we haven't even gotten to the discussion, which we'll get to about the shortages in EMS that this, you know, that's going on. But the point I'm trying to make is from a, from a, a fire side, what is it that we have to do, you know, from an EMS side and a fire side really to embrace community paramedicine? Cause I heard a fire chief, I was talking to a fire chief here in Missouri uh, two weeks ago. And he said, well, this new community paramedic uh, transition and I had to say, Chief, we've been doing it since 2008. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. not new, you know. Yeah, and I think I think for a lot of people that, uh, what's the best way to say this? So I guess a lot of people that don't listen to the podcasts, that don't uh, dive into the dot coms, that you know just kind of come to work and do their thing. It might be new to them uh, because in a lot of cases, people shy away from this discussion. They, uh, they only have it in this environment, which actually you just gave me a great idea for a new article. So new article coming on uh, mobile integrated health in the fire department. I, I think that we have to, again, same as the hot, warm, cold. It's a discussion we've got to re-energize. We were doing pretty good about it through the IAFC and some others about uh, having the discussion of fire-based EMS. And that was leading into mobile integrated health. And okay, for my EMS friends, I will say EMS-based fire. I get it. So the, uh, again, that's the second time I've said it on your show. I want to point that out. 
But the the uh, reality is we've got to continue to have that discussion and understand what it what it entails, because when you think about it from two perspectives, one is a union perspective and one is a volunteer perspective. Forget fire or EMS, union and volunteer. The union perspective, oh, wait a minute, that's something we got to negotiate. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. OK, I'll, I'll play those politics. But at the end of the day, Grandma Jones is the one that deserves better service from us. And I'm going to be working towards that. Whatever that means in negotiation, we'll work through that. The volunteer side of the house, the majority and not all, not all plantation is, is one of those that I'll point to, but not all of volunteer fire departments shy away from the provision of EMS. It's just not what most people volunteer for. Most, not all. So when you look at it from those two angles, now here I come as you know, Chief Yuck Yuck saying, hey, we're going to uh, implement mobile integrated health in your fire department. And they're going, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. We've got to really have that discussion about, you know, what you did sign up for. And at the end of the day, that's one word. And that word is service. So if that service means mobile integrated service, mobile integrated health service, well, you know what? Here we go. Right. So, yeah, we just need to keep getting that discussion out there and find ways uh, to evolve with it and not have it uh, not have it evolve around us, because I don't think we're going to like what we see if we let it do that. Right. Well, you talk about rebranding. You know, you've mentioned you had said it. You've mentioned it a couple of times on the show. <laughs> this rebranding. We're starting to see more rebranding in the fire service. And that was really a hot topic. I mean, as you and I were preparing for this show, there was a fire system in Georgia that is changing from uh, fire and EMS to EMS and fire. Is this is this really necessary in this? Yeah, in this day yeah. I think that, uh, you know, sometimes we get hung up on what words first and what words not. And is that a feel-good thing? Well, you know what? Um, if that's a feel-good thing, how much money are you going to spend on rebranding, just switching the word left and right? I get having the two words in there. I could give a rat's ass whether you have EMS first or fire first. I care that when the 911 call happens, you go. So, yeah, I don't know that the rebranding to switch the name around uh, does anything other than make some people feel good. Uh, you know what? People feel good or bad no matter which words in front. So uh, I'm not going to spend money where money is precious on a rebranding. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And it, it's semantics, you know, and we, you know, we, we don't need to worry about what is on the side of the ambulances or on the fire trucks. We really need to worry about the education of the people that we're serving. I got to tell you another big issue in EMS this year was the use of ketamine. And yeah. we had a political event that really kind of happened in, uh, you know, the middle of the United States. And of course, based on some decisions that were made by providers uh, to give a drug, uh, give a little bit too much of the drug, it, it resulted in a fatality. But what happened subsequently is the politicians have gotten involved in the business of EMS and passed legislation in the state that says, you cannot use ketamine unless these blah, blah, blahs are met. And yeah. one of the things that we talked about from an EMS side on this chief was the fact of that we have to do our business better and cleaner than the next guy, because now we're seeing EMS providers that are being brought up on manslaughter charges because they're being uh, negligent in delivering care to people and people are dying. And uh, but we've got to be able to curb that from an EMS leadership side. And I'm just interesting, uh, just interested from your side, um, you know, what are the tips that we need to share with our listeners to say, you know, we've got to take care of people 
And we've got to do it in a way that, uh, again, as we're taught in school, that we're treating our family members and doing it with the utmost of respect. Yeah. So first of all, let me uh, hit that it doesn't really address the question you just asked, but it, 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 this is a pain point for me with respect to a politician getting involved in the provision of medication or the provision of firefighting, you know, something that's in our business. And that pain point for me is the federal parent for EMS as the Department of Transportation versus the federal parent for fire uh, of FEMA versus the federal parent for forestry is the Department of Interior. Um, you know, and then there's federal firefighters. I mean, you, uh, we have to find a way to have one parent for our fire and EMS uh, advocacy to be able, uh, you know, Congressional Fire Service Caucus does a great job. I'm on that National Advisory Council, uh, and we do a great job of trying to educate the politicians on the needs of the fire service. And we deal with fire-based EMS because that's the discussion, not not switching words around. We deal with that sometimes, but it's a it's uh, not really the low-hanging fruit of that discussion. If EMS was part of one entity, whether that's FEMA or create some other damn entity, if you don't want to come to the same one that fire was in, that doesn't, that's not the point. Uh, and I think that if we do that, that our federal uh, and pol political advocacy can be much stronger uh, if we team up together and have one federal parent. There's that. Uh, to your question about what tips can we give folks, one is to understand that um, the discussion of values and ethics, those are uh, not just words. When we talk about what your value statement is or your ethics statement or uh, you know, all of those things, they're not just words. They need to be a way of life. They need to be a way of doing business. And if that's uh, ketamine that we're dealing with uh, to um, decide whether it's the right thing or not, you know, I, I, this is also a pain point for me and that the medical directors across the United States have different protocols from state to state. And I'm not quite sure how to solve that problem of what drug is or isn't. Uh, if you're in Colorado, it's, it's acceptable, but if you cross the border into Kansas, it's not. You know, I, I don't know that those two states have differing ones, but that's just uh, kind of the point. So the, the biggest tip I can give people is make sure that we're living by the, uh, the ethics and the values that our departments should be uh, uh, instructing us on or should be laying out there for us of what the expectations are and um, use that along with your training and experience to make the right decisions at the right time. That's the best piece of advice I can give folks. No, and I think that's perfect advice. And, um, you know, but you're right. There is not one entity. And then there was a, there was a movement uh, a couple years back to really make it, uh, uh, you know, put EMS under health and human services. Mm -hmm. And that kind of fell by the wayside. But I can tell you this, in all my years of being involved at the national level in EMS, there has been great collaboration between multiple agencies in the year of 2020 and 2021 than ever before. So again, another thing that comes out of the pandemic is that all the leaders of the organization, fire chiefs, um, you know, uh, AAA, the uh, ambulance associations, NAEMT, they meet every other Friday and they talk about things that are going on and how they can collaborate together. So, but one of the things I want to share with you that I had a little bit of challenge with this year from an EMS standpoint is that of vaccines. 
And I got to tell you, first, I'm going to start off by saying I believe in the vaccine. I got the vaccine as soon as I could. I manipulated my way. And when I say manipulated, not taking anybody else's position, but uh, trying to get the vaccine as early as I could. But here's where I took some umbrage, Chief. And there were a lot of nurses. There were a lot of EMS providers. There were a lot of uh, firefighters who came to work and worked extra shifts because of, you know, challenges within their department of who had COVID and so on. And then when the vaccine came out, because people had challenges with the way the vaccine was created or some of the, you know, we talk about spin and political stuff that was going on, they chose not to take the vaccine. And then subsequently, all these people that we were praising for being heroes and being on the front line of doing this business, when they chose not to take the vaccine, we yeah. turned our back on them and we fired them or we laid them off. And I believe New York City Fire Department uh, wound up uh, putting uh, about 2000 people on uh, leave because they didn't want to take the vaccine. I got to tell you, I, I, am, I don't know that I'm a believer in if you choose not to take the vaccine, you need it because we let people work and work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours in a week when we needed them. And now we're saying you're expendable because you're not doing it. Get out of my organization. Yeah, and I, I uh, will agree with you on uh, advocacy for the vaccine. Um, I am uh, as early as I could get it. I got it. Uh, I got the second uh, dose when I could and just recently got the booster. So um, that's just who I am. That's not a political statement. And for, for those that may wonder, I am a Republican and I still went and got it. So, you know, politics shouldn't come into it. Unfortunately, it does. So at the, uh, at the end of the day, though, with the firefighters and EMS personnel that lost their jobs, I, I agree it's a travesty of justice. I think there has to have been a better way. I will say that uh, I... I'll take some flack for this, but I'm disappointed in the people who would not get it. I understand their concerns that are articulated about uh, what they believe, whether it's a conspiracy or what they believe that the FDA hadn't done a, a, a proper uh, vetting of the vaccine. I understand that. I just don't agree with it. And I think as public safety officials, uh, I, you know, I always use the Grandma Jones things. Grandma Jones is expecting that uh, when we come to her house that uh, we're coming healthy and that uh, we're coming prepared to do everything we can do. And I think one way to make sure that we were healthy and we're doing it is with the vaccine. Now, that said, is firing people the answer? No. I mean, there's plenty of opportunity to either educate people and hopefully have them get it or require testing or require additional masking and uh you know, to require additional shielding, it, there's plenty of opportunity for that. Um, and I don't, I don't think that anywhere in there should have included the words, you're fired. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that that's what it came to. Um, you know, you started, you, you mentioned earlier, the shortage of personnel across the country, it's both a fire and an EMS problem. Um, all you need to do is look at any department, it just seems like they're constantly hiring, they're constantly having forced overtime. Uh, constantly in the, that mandatory scenario of overtime. And uh, that's wearing on the psyche, add COVID to it. 
um, add all of those other things. And some of the things that we talked about on this show, mobile integrated health and all, those are things that may be able to reduce some of that stress, but we have to continue to push those forward within our organizations or, you know, they're not going to have an effect. Right. And that's a great transition, Chief, as we, we've been mentioning about the shortage in EMS and it's, it's crazy. And EMS always seemed to be short when, uh, you know, and really, I, I think personally, I think it comes down to an EMS leadership issue that we're not, you know, is EMS a career field or is EMS a stepping stone? We've been saying that for years. I'm saying that it's been a stepping stone because people come into EMS to get into the fire service, to go to nursing school. And this is the easiest way to do that. I think we need to embrace that rather than fight it because oh, if absolutely. People, yeah, if people want to go to the fire service. It's my job to get them to the fire service because we've got to be able to grow these people into the best EMTs and paramedics for our own organization. And then if we're able to have, you know, the fire service, you know, hire from inside EMS, and then we're just going to get a funnel of people into EMS that are going to jump into the fire service. But anyway, that's not where I want to be. <laughs> you know, we're, we're starting to see well, in, in this discussion, we're yeah. having a lot of agencies that are having challenges with staffing and EMS agencies have to be able to change the way that they're doing work. I had Matt Zavodsky on, who was the past president of NEMT. And we, again, created this environment because we said, you know, eight minute and 59 second response time. We said there's got to be a paramedic on every vehicle. We said, you know, in RFPs to take over cities, we're going to put two paramedics on the truck. And now as we start to get short and we're not able to meet this demand that we've set for ourselves, now we're saying, you know what? Maybe you don't even need one paramedic on a truck. We can put them in a chase vehicle, respond with BLS units, and then go ahead and, um, you know, send a chase vehicle. We need to for those really 1%, 2%, 3% calls. And uh, another thing that's happening uh, before I give you the floor on this topic, Chief, is we are now seeing a nursing shortage. And at the University of Kentucky Hospital, they're hiring paramedics to fill their nursing shortages, which is just going to increase the problem of an EMS shortage. And then number two, we're sending these people home because they haven't taken the vaccine. As you mentioned, um, this has just been a crazy year for EMS when it comes to staffing. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have a quick answer for you um, beyond the mobile integrated health discussion. I think it is beyond time uh, to embrace the whole discussion. Um, I prefer mobile integrated health to community paramedicine because when you say community paramedicine, to me, that means a community ALS program, advanced life support program. And that's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're truly talking about mobile integrated health. And that, that might be ALS, it might be BLS, it might be uh, just a safety related thing. It might not even be care related. It might be about slip, trip and fall in the house, um, you know, which is why I go into the whole community risk reduction. How does that make a difference? I'll point to the case in Prince George's County, Maryland, when we implemented mobile integrated health there. Uh, we implemented the program. They took the, uh, a certain number. I don't have the number, but they took a certain number of the 911 uh, frequent flyers, and you had to have a certain threshold. Um, and then the first person they put into the program, she had called 911 60 times in the three months prior, 60 times in the three months prior to being in the program. In the subsequent three months after going into the program, she called one time, and that was for a true emergency. So what that meant was 59 less EMS calls for that one person, uh, which 
drives, uh, I'll use the word insanity, but it drives the insanity amongst our folks who are like, oh my God, I can't keep doing this because they're going to these calls that don't make sense. So I think the way that we begin to change that culture is by embracing that mobile integrated health uh, discussion and implementation, which has the real potential to make a difference in the stresses on our people which then makes a difference on the people that decide to stay. So that's, you know, that comes full circle to your question about how do we keep people? How do we get people? Um, you know what? We keep people by having it be a little bit less stressful of an environment. And if that means that it is a funnel for going to fire, I'm, I agree with you. We should embrace whatever the industry is bringing to us with respect to how these, uh, how, how workers work. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to create a new culture of worker by demanding that it has to be this way or right. that we separate or that we combine. I mean, the culture is the culture right. and we either embrace that or we fight it. And if we fight it, then we're going to find ourselves having the same, same discussion next year. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, chief, as I mentioned, I'm a fan of the show. Um, I listened to the very first show. I listened to uh, every, every show you put out. And uh, if you're not a fan from Inside EMS, the fans that listen to Inside EMS, if you're not a fan of Side Alpha Podcast, check out what uh, uh, Chief Bayshore is doing. And he is really, he's got some really great guests that come on. You know, he's talking to the top leaders in the fire service, and it really kind of helps you understand what's going on. But one of the things that, and, and for the Side Alpha folks, if you're, if you haven't listened to Inside EMS, come on over and give me a shot. Oh, absolutely. Me and Kelly Grayson and... Uh, and uh, let's kind of talk some EMS. But one of the things that I've heard you talk about is Maydays. And mm. maybe for the people in EMS that aren't really, uh, don't really understand that, maybe just tell a little bit about uh, Maydays and uh, what that really means uh, and how it affects everyone, really. Sure. Yeah. So in 2022, that's I almost said 2021. In 2022, that's going to be a hot topic for me. Um, no pun intended in that, you know, there's a lot of uh, data that's been in the process of being developed from a project called Project Mayday. And if you go to projectmayday.com, you'll be able to see that. Um, and in that particular case, Don Abbott and his team examined over 11,000 Maydays, and they came up with uh, 16 indicators that um, are almost always present when there's uh, at least a certain number of those are almost always present when there's a mayday. A lot of good information. We need to get that information out there. I'm actually doing a, a couple of classes uh, in December. Um, by the time this airs, the classes will have been done, but I'm doing a couple of classes here in December that uh, will briefly talk about this. And it'll talk about how departments need to be ready and recognize the signs and symptoms of a sick scene. And uh, using those 16 indicators, helps both fire and EMS people come to a realization that, um, you know, th there's a lot more commonality to these maydays than we think. And uh, that we also need to be thinking about, and this is the other piece of the discussion I'm going to be having. And it's, it's probably the title of the class. I haven't decided it yet, but my question to you is, could you rescue you? So it's a discussion about health uh, health and safety. It's a discussion about your mindset, uh, about your, uh, you know, your uh, mental and moral focus and stability and ability to 
uh, get in under those adverse situations and get the job done, but also about uh, just frankly, physical fitness. And um, when we do Mayday training, we need to make sure that we're including EMS in that training and carry the training scenarios all the way through to loading that firefighter in the back of an ambulance if it's necessary for the training purpose. Include those EMS teams, include them in the training so that they understand and that they're part of the solution and not just a bystander. I think that's great. And something that we have to be able to put on our radar from the EMS side because we are up close and personal when it comes to our uh, fire brethren. And it may be us that's getting them to that ambulance and helping with that process. We've got to be in our best shape uh, as we can. I got to tell you, Chief, it's been a great wrap-up show from Inside EMS and Fire Rescue One. I want to just say to everybody out there in the uh, EMS world, I want to thank you for listening to Inside EMS. Kelly Grayson and I are humbled that you come and join us on a weekly basis to, uh, you know, go with us inside EMS. And we hope everybody has a great new year and keep those ideas coming for shows. Uh, we're getting probably two or three or four different show ideas every week. Uh, but chief from the fireside, you know, what you're doing there in, uh, you know, from side alpha podcast, you know, you're keeping everyone educated and up on the latest news that's happening and I can't wait to uh, get with you next year and see what 2022 has brought us from a fire side and from an EMS side. Absolutely. And I think we ought to do this more often, Chris. Um, maybe quarterly we can get together and talk about what the, you know, what those hot topics are for, uh, for both of us. Because, uh, like I said, I think we should be in this together. We are in this together. So uh, talking more often will help us get through it together. Awesome. And we want to hear your comments, your concerns, your questions. You could email us at the show at ems1.com. And for Kelly Grayson and Chief Mark Bayshore, this is Chris Sabalero. We'll talk to everyone again real soon. Well, folks, that's all we have time for on the Side Alpha Podcast. I've been talking with Chris Sabalero, the host for the Inside EMS Podcast, our Lexapol partner. I appreciate uh, Chris's insight into the EMS and fire continuum, I'll call it. And I hope that you've enjoyed our time. I look forward to your comments and any questions or suggestions you may have. In the meantime, join us next time here on Side Alpha Podcast. This is Mark Bayshore, Executive Editor for Fire Rescue One. Have a great day on purpose. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care.